We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Welcome to Layman's Lounge podcast, which is a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. That's, that's most of us. 99% of us Christians are um, busy moms, grouchy dads, driving the minivan, like getting excited about the weekend trip to the river, um, working hard at boring jobs, sometimes fun, whatever. So anyways, we're excited to be with you. My name is Jason Estopanol I'm from Kona, Hawaii. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer. And on the airline, Joe Humphreys, Mount Vernon, Washington, who is an appliance salesman. How are you, Joe? I'm excellent. I have four days off, and I don't want to think about dishwashers or refrigerators or compressors uh, for four days, but I'm, I'm great. <laughs> nice. And we have the privilege, honor, and all those right words to have on the other line calling in from, um, I think, Atlanta, Jack Deer. Aloha, Jack. How are you? Hi, Jason. Good. Yeah, Joe first introduced me uh, to some of the stuff from Jack Deere. Um, I don't know when it was, along with Sam Storms and a few other people, just blowing my mind. And we're just constantly texting back and forth. So it's a, it's a real honor. Um, and functionally, we're really excited to have you here. We have a lot of questions. So buckle up, listeners, because for the next 12 hours, we're doing it. <laughs> so mainly today, we want to encourage listeners to go out and buy uh, Jack Deere's book, Why I'm Still Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Um, the subtitle is Discovering How God Speaks and Heals Today. And I just want to read a few paragraphs from it that literally hooked me uh, where I, I had to keep reading this book. Um, on page 15, he says, becoming a young professor in, the sem- in seminary was probably the worst thing that could have happened to my spiritual life. Much later, I would learn, for, through, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Jack says, I served a savior who healed, who taught his followers to heal, and whose followers taught their followers to heal, but I did not teach my students to heal. I taught my students that fake healers were fakes. I ridiculed Catherine Coleman for having heart problems. Then I ridiculed her for dying. Then I changed. I didn't have a crisis of faith like the apostles. One day I just asked the Lord a simple question, Lord, why did you heal all those people? This book is the story of how he answered that question and the story of how he turned me into a healer, not a good healer, nothing like Jesus or Paul, just a broken person with a healing gift. So far, most people I pray for don't get healed, but I've been in the room when blind people have opened uh, their eyes, crooked bones have straightened, deaf ears have been opened, a wheelchair has been emptied, and maybe even someone has come back from the dead. So straight off the bat, please address 
for the skeptic, the most in-your-face um, healing that you've seen or been a part of directly or uh, please describe it for the listener. Well, that that's uh, hard to say, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you a, a blind healing that uh, was, was impressive and instructive. Um, I was doing a Chinese conference in, in America, Chinese speaking Christians, and uh, I felt like God would heal blind people. So we called up people that were uh, blind or significantly vision impaired. And there was a girl who looked to be about 18 or 19. She was completely uh, blind. And I just felt like she had faith to be healed. And I wanted to go pray for her immediately. We had a team up there praying for people. And then there was a 70-year-old lady that grabbed me by the shirt uh, who was blind. I think it was in her left eye, but she could see out of her right eye. And she's saying, uh, pray, pray for me, pray for me. But she's speaking in Chinese and I can't understand her. So the interpreter says she's blind in her left eye. She wants you to pray for her. And I didn't want to pray for her. I wanted to go pray for the uh, 18-year-old girl because I thought she's, she's got faith to be healed. So I just stopped and put my hand over her left eye and said like the briefest prayer, in the name of Jesus, uh, see. And, and then she started jabbering wildly in Chinese. And I said, okay, I'll pray for you again. And she, and she got louder. And the interpreter saying, no, she can see. She can see, she can see perfectly. And I'm going, I, I can't, I, I, I just still takes a while to register that she could actually see. And, I, and my, I was thinking like, hey, she's got one good eye. What's she, I mean, she's 70 years old. Uh, so no way God's going to do this. That was my attitude when I prayed for her. Okay, so uh, so then I went over to pray for uh, the 18-year-old, 19-year-old girl, a sweet girl, and, and I was sure she would see, and she could see, a, but before it was over, I prayed for her a long time, and she could see, she thought she could see more light coming in, but nothing happened. So go figure, what does that tell you about healing? It's really unpredictable. I'm, I mean, I know some things that will promote healing and some things will hinder it, uh, but sometimes I see the most amazing things uh, without without any indication they're going to happen. Um, and, and sometimes with just the like minuscule faith, just enough faith to pray for people. So that's one that's always stuck with me, one I've always uh, remembered. That is a wonderful, that's perfect, because um, I think a lot of people feel like an imbalance, even towards walking, even starting to believe in healing because they want it to be seamless and you just straight up said it's not seamless it's unpredictable but for the person who's listening who does not know you jack um they're thinking oh great let's listen to another podcast or i don't have to listen to a nut can you <laughs> prove or not prove but can you tell us about your academic background that your professor uh, maybe the degrees you have so that people can't just say, oh, this is just a freak from across the street that they found. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> let me just give you like a five-minute synopsis of, of my life. So I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a traumatic home. My dad and mom were at war from the time I was five years old. I didn't understand it. And I was the oldest of four kids, two younger brothers, a baby sister. When I was 12 years old, my dad ended the war by killing himself. And uh, that was not the worst thing my dad did to me. The worst thing my dad did to me is when I was nine years old, I asked him how you get to heaven. And he said, when you die, you go up and stand before the gates of heaven and St. Peter comes out to meet you. 
and he brings two books out, a book of all your bad deeds and a book of all your good deeds. And he sets a pair of scales on a table and he puts the bad deeds on one side and the good deeds on the other. If the good deeds go down, you go up. But if the bad deeds go down, so do you, and you will burn in hell forever and ever. I was nine years old when I heard that. My mom beat us, uh, not because she was a monster, but because she was an unloved woman and she took her anger out on us. She beat us. And by the time I was nine, she had convinced me that I was thoroughly bad. And so when my dad told me that, I just gave up on God. I gave up on getting to heaven. And I thought, well, I, if I'm going to hell, I might as well be bad and, and enjoy it. And then after my dad killed himself, we just saw this parade of men come through the house. And we, we uh, my mom was really pretty, but she had uh, a 10th grade education. There was no way that she could take care of four kids in 1961 in Texas. And so we saw things, we, we saw sexual things, things we should, the kids should never have seen. From the time I was 13, I could mix drinks at the bar for her, uh, for her boyfriends, and I could knock back whiskey sours on my own. I was permitted to drink from the time I was 13, and with no criticism, and the, and the men thought that was really cute, watching this 13-year-old boy knock, that, knock back whiskey sours. And uh, I had eight friends in high school, and I couldn't distinguish myself uh, academically or athletically, but there were eight of us that all hung out together. And what we had in common was our parents were divorced or divorcing. They were alcoholics or becoming alcoholics. And so we had virtually no supervision. Uh, I, I, I stole liquor for us. I stole all my clothes because I couldn't afford clothes. I would drive 120 miles drunk, uh, 120 miles an hour. And the way that I got my self-esteem was by trying to be the wildest kid in, in school. And, and, uh, and, I, and I didn't, none of us were Christians. None of us had gone to church. I, we never went to church. So I was 16 years old before I learned who Jesus Christ was. That was just a swear word to me until I saw the greatest story ever told in, in the spring of 1965. And one of the critics says, that was the greatest story ever told. It was probably the worst movie ever made. <laughs> and they, uh, and they, they uh, crucified Jesus. And my response was, oh, why'd they have to go and do that? He was such a nice guy. I got nothing out of it. I don't even remember the resurrection. And, and so that was my relationship to, uh, to God. And the smartest guy in our group became a Christian and, and, uh, and prayed for me for 18 months. We, we uh, excommunicated, him, excommunicated him immediately from our group. But he prayed for me for 18 months. On December 18th, 1965, he, he conned me into spending the night at his house, telling me he would introduce me to some beautiful new girls from a high school on the wealthy side of, of Fort Worth, on the west side. So I spent the night with him. Two o'clock in the morning, we're, we're lying in his room uh, on separate beds on either side of the room. And I say, Bruce, how do you think you get into heaven? And here's what he said to me. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. I had never heard that. If you will trust him to forgive you and give you a new life, he will come into your heart and never leave. And I said, oh, Bruce, that can't be true. And he goes, no, no, it's true. I mean, when you're 17 years old and everyone you've ever loved just left you, then to hear the greatest person in the universe won't leave you, ah, that's probably not true. And he goes, oh, it's true. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because Jesus Christ said so, and Jesus can't lie. And then he quoted the first verse of scripture I ever heard, John 10, 28, where Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life 
and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And when I heard that verse, I was instantly born again. I couldn't have told you I was born again. I hadn't, that was not even in my vocabulary. Salvation, sanctification, justification. None of those words were in the confession. None of those words were in my vocabulary. All I said when I heard that verse was in my heart, silently, I said, God, I'm coming over to your side. And I didn't say any more to Bruce. Two couple days later, I called him and said, Bruce, I don't know what you guys call this, uh, but I want to come over to God's side now. And he goes, Jackie, don't go anyplace. I'll be right there. He's, he wanted he was afraid I might change my mind before he could get to my house. And he explained the gospel to me and uh, stuck a Bible under my nose, took me through the Sermon on the Mount and said, and it was King James English and said, here, read this. And you know how, well, you won't know this, but years ago, uh, you know, 50 years ago, the King James Bible was the Bible in the church. And in high school students always complained about it. I didn't. I loved the Elizabethan English. It made the Bible seem more holy and I could understand it. And, and so I just started reading and didn't stop, got discipled by a young life leader I met in church. That all happened when I was 17, went to college, majored in philosophy because I wanted to see what was so powerful about all the agnostic arguments and all that. I never gave a thought uh, to what I would do for a living. Uh, I, I was just interested in following uh, Jesus. I went to Dallas Seminary and uh, turned out that I was a whiz at Greek and Hebrew and, and Aramaic and Arabic and, and all those languages. I mean, it wasn't just that I was good in language. Participles and infinitives made me happy. Uh, and I got, uh, it, and when I graduated, I became a professor there. So at 17, a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages. So at 17, I didn't know a single verse of scripture. At 27, I was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I spent the next 12 years as a professor there and teaching in the doctoral program and all of that kind of stuff. I was well on my way to an, uh, in an academic world. I started a, a church uh, called Christ Chapel. And I think last Easter they had 17,000 people there. And it was like a church of the aristocracy in Fort Worth. And uh, the one thing I knew for sure was that God doesn't heal anymore. Because my professors had taught me that. I'd never seen healing and I believe we had the best theology in the world. So if God were going to heal, surely he'd be healing among us. Uh, it never dawned on me that you have not because you asked not. We weren't praying for healing. So why would I expect to, uh, to see it? And so that was the state I was in when I asked God that question. Why did you do it? And for the first time, I went back and studied every single healing story. In, in January 1986 till April 1986, I spent four months reading every single healing story in the New Testament and writing down reasons why God did it. See, at Dallas, we said God healed uh, through the apostles to show that they were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. Now we have their doctrine in the New Testament, so we don't need healing anymore. And, and so I tested that hypothesis, and there was not one clear verse that said God healed to show, he was, uh, to show the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. Not a single verse. There are like 12, 10, 12 different reasons. He healed out of compassion. He healed out of mercy. He healed to bring glory to God. All of these reasons rested in the eternal character of God, not in some historical changing uh, circumstance of the, the transition of the uh, church that made the Old Testament to the New Testament church. They all rested in the eternal character of God. Four months after four months of study, I knew that the New Testament taught God was still healing today, but I didn't know how to pray for the sick. I didn't have any credible witnesses. And our church didn't pray for the sick. So that's where I was in um, the spring of 1986.
theoretical so belief, feeling, but no experience of it. Um, you did not believe in the gifts, let's just say, of healing, the gift of healing given by the Spirit as a professor. Uh, were your reasons then based on sola scriptura? Uh, well, no. My, uh, we we would have said I would have said to my students, "Hey, scripture has everything we need for life. You don't you don't need to hear some special voice from God. You can just figure it out from the Bible." But mainly, my reason was theological. God healed. His primary purpose in healing was to show that the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. He's done that. We have their doctrine. There's no need for healing. And then, then I had this emotional reaction for healing because the only place I heard about it was in these groups with really bad theology and, you know, seeing giant Jesuses and all this kind of stuff and, you know, people that didn't have uh, an education. And so I, and, and a lot of them were poor and uh, the people I hung out with were rich. And so I just had this visceral, this emotional reaction to what I thought was the contemporary expression of healing so I had a theological reason against it and then an emotional reaction against it um, so, what, so what happened um i mean i would just love for you to continue on that story after the spring of 86 when you had that great sort of realization what you you finally saw there was no biblical reason to not believe that god still hit still healed people what um was, what continued after that it was actually stronger than it. It wasn't just that there was no biblical reason to disbelieve in healing. There were like 10 or 12 biblical reasons to believe in it, all rooted in the eternal character of God. So Jesus healed the widow of Nain's son because he had compassion on her. All right, so if you say God's not healing anymore, then hey, when did he stop expressing that compassion? The blind man, the, the, the blind man calls out for mercy, and he has mercy on him, and he heals him. Jesus said he's raised in Lazarus for the glory of God. So, so when did he not, when did they stop caring about the glory of God? And, uh, and uh, Peter in, in Acts 3, when he heals the lame man, he goes, it's for the glory of God. When did God stop wanting to glorify himself through supernatural? Uh, so it's, it's like I had all these reasons to believe in it. My problem was I had no credible witness or mentor, no one to teach, teach me how to do it. So I had guys to teach me how to study scripture, and they were phenomenal. They had double degrees, so a, 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 a doctor's degree in Greek from Dallas Seminary, a, a Old Testament uh, doctorate from Harvard. That was, my, that was my doctor father in the Old Testament department, Bruce Walkie. So I had all these guys that really could teach me how to study scripture, but I had no one to teach me how to pray for the sick or how to hear God's voice. So if you want to be a great golfer, what do you do? You get a coach. And everything in life, if you want to be good at it, you get a mentor or a teacher, and I had no one to do that. And then I met one of my heroes, a, a, a guy named Dr. John White, who was the leading uh, InterVarsity Press author. He wrote all these phenomenal books on the Christian life. We used them all in our church, and, and through a divine set of circumstances, I met him, and I found out he believed in healing. And, uh, and he was not crazy. He was really smart. He had been a professor of psychiatry. He, he was fluent in Spanish. He had been a missionary in Bolivia. I mean, he was godly. He was intelligent. He knew the scriptures. And uh, we became friends. And he told me, there's this guy in California named John Wimber that I've come to know. And I've never seen anybody that heals like him or hears God's voice. He's the best teacher I've ever seen. And if you ever get a chance to meet him, meet him. Well, two weeks after uh, John White told me that, John Wimber came to our town. 
And uh, he was doing a meeting in a Southern Baptist church that was standing room only. And I, uh, and I went, and uh, yeah, by, by this time, I, I'd never heard of John Wimber until John White told me. But between the time John White told me and I met John Wimber, I heard all these bad things about John Wimber. I started uh, <laughs> looking up and reading and, and uh, like, man, the conservative evangelicals hated this guy. And, and now it's Thursday afternoon. I'm, I'm leaving my office at Dallas and I'm going to go meet him. I'm walking out of my office at Dallas and there's a group of about 10, 12 students right at the corner of my academic building. And I hear one of them say, uh, yeah, and he named one of our graduates. He was in a meeting in Australia with John Wimber. And so I just stopped. And he said, John Wimber walked into the room, raised up his hands and said, come Holy Spirit. And they all fell down on the floor, started barking like dogs and vomiting. God's honest truth. And I went, oh, no. And I'm going to a John Wimber meeting that night. I go, oh, no. What have I got myself into? I don't, want to fall, I don't want to fall down on the floor and vomit like a dog. I mean, I used to do that before I became a Christian. And it wasn't that much fun then. And so now I've got, instead of being excited about meeting, meeting him, I'm going to go to the meeting. I've taken 10 people from my church. But I'm afraid of what might happen at the meeting. It might get really weird. And so he comes out on stage, and right from the beginning, I like him. He's down to earth. He's real. He's got no entourage to protect him. He gives a meeting that I, gives a message that I could have given in seminary and wouldn't have raised a single eyebrow. And then he says, uh, okay, it's time to pray for the sick. And um, so he, he said, I think God will heal backs tonight. Well, you know, probably half of any room's got back problems, right? So that, that's not so impressive. Um, but he's not shouting. He's not kicking over chairs. He's not. He's he's totally against my my stereotype. Oh, and he's dressed in jogging shoes and khakis, and I've got a coat and tie on. Uh, so he's, he's California casual. And then he said, uh, "There's a lady here, and you haven't come forward. You've got back pain. It comes over. It starts in your uh, right shoulder, wraps around your back, and comes out on your left side. Would you please come forward?" And I went, "Whoa! How does he know that?" And then nobody comes forward. And I thought, oh, poor John Wimber. He was doing so good when he just said backs, you know. And then uh, he says, you, you went to the doctor on Tuesday. And you, he, he, you've had this pain for several years. And he told you you were just going to have to live with it. But I think I might heal you if you'll come down. And I went, man, this is like the Syrian commander. I mean, like, like, uh, the, like the prophet hearing what the Syrian commander is saying in their bedroom. This is awesome but she didn't come down. And then he says, your name's Margaret. Margaret, would you please get up and come down? Let us pray for you. And then about halfway down, about halfway down the center aisle, Margaret gets up and she starts walking down to the front, but she's kind of shuffling with her head down. Like, why didn't I come when he first called me? And I went, this is amazing. And then I went, no, this is, uh, it, it was just like too good to be true. What, what if uh, she's Margaret here on Thursday night? And then when they take this show to, Lizard Lick, Texas on Saturday. She's Mabel McClutch's butt. She comes down to the front with an envelope, two tumors she coughed up. You know, <laughs> I had this wave of skepticism that just went over me. And the guy sitting, the, a guy I'd known since high school, we had led him to the Lord. He's in my church. Um, sitting next to me, screams out, that's Margaret, my sister-in-law. It was Margaret Pinkston. Everything Wimber said was true. She went down to the front, some guy prayed for her, not a pastor, some guy on the healing team, and she was instantly healed. And I interviewed her. I mean, so I, I know all that's true. And I know Mike Pinkston, he 
15 years ago, we led them to the Lord. Uh, and so I'm one of the first ones in line, me and my wife, Lisa, we're one of the first ones in line to talk to John Wimber uh, after the meeting. And, and uh, Wimber sees me and he hears the Lord say, I'm going to bind you to that couple. But he knows not to tell me that. He knows not to say anything like that. So I introduce myself and say, hey, I'm a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary. He goes, oh, yeah, John White told me about you. And uh, so then he takes me around and he starts showing me things of the, uh, about people that are healing and telling me things about people that are being prayed for. He just knows them. And uh, then, he, th then he, he calls me back about a week later. And he said, Jack, I got to tell you, if you go any further with me or healing, you're going to lose your job at Dallas Seminary and you're going to lose your church. Everything you've worked for in your career, you're probably going to lose. And, uh, it, and so I, I didn't think that was true because I, I have a good ability to argue from scripture. Now I believe in healing. I can prove it and I'll debate anybody about it. And I'm good in Greek and Hebrew and I didn't come to this lightly. And, and so I don't think what he says is true. And so I, but I don't tell him that. So I don't want him to think I'm arrogant, right? <laughs> I'm so arrogant. I can't stand it, but I don't, I'm not in touch with that, you know, thinking I could out argue that this had, this was actually an intellectual deal, you know, and the one with the best arguments would win. I didn't, I, I still didn't realize how much emotional uh, investment there was in not believing in healing. So you, I say, yeah. go ahead. Would you, um, so would you actually say that you root your conviction in this originally from Sola Scriptura that scripture yeah, yeah. defined. Oh yeah, uh, everything was by scripture for me. If you uh, and I thought scripture said healing wasn't for the day. That's why I didn't believe in it. Didn't want to explore it. Now when I'm convinced that scripture saying it, it is happening, um, that that Jesus is in favor of healing, the apostles are in favor of healing, the the gift of healing, all those gifts are being uh, given, and I realize I had an anti supernatural hermeneutic. Now I'm totally in. This is. This is one of the things pastors are supposed to do. We're, can, we're not just supposed to be teachers, we're supposed to be healers. Yeah. Can you um, talk about how people argue that the completion of the canon erased the need for the gifts? Can you address how um, the canon, I don't think, could uh, do a lot of the things that the gifts do? <laughs> um, can you address how that's a not a biblical argument and just practically how that the, how the completion of the canon would never replace the gifts that the spirit gives to the church. Well, that's probably the dumbest of all the arguments and hardly anybody uses it anymore. And it's based and they'll say uh, the, the perfect, they'll, they'll use first Corinthians 13 and they'll say the perfect is the canon. So when the perfect comes then we don't need anything uh, but the scriptures. And, and if that were true, you wouldn't need teaching. You wouldn't need any, anything else. Uh, it doesn't eliminate uh, spiritual gifts. The, the, the scripture doesn't do that. And there's not a shred of biblical proof that says, hey, when you have the Bible, uh, you won't need supernatural gifts anymore. So nobody says when you have the Bible, you won't need to get the teaching, right? Uh, or you won't need the gift of helps or, or mercy uh, or leadership. No, nobody says that. Uh, and none of my colleagues, my, my colleagues who knew Greek and Hebrew, they're all too smart to make an argument like that. So here, here's, what, here's what one of my colleagues would say. This was like a typical thing. One of my colleagues would say, oh, I, I, I believe in healing. I just don't believe in healers. Well, that sounds pretty good. Until you start testing it by analogy. Oh, I believe in teaching. I just don't believe in teachers. 
So yeah, when does God ever do one of the gifts out of the thin air? No, the gifts are gifts given to people who operate in those things. So there's just, there's no biblical evidence that having the Bible renders any of the gifts obsolete or unnecessary or evangelism unnecessary. I mean, the Bible doesn't lead people to the Lord, right? So you, so that was probably what your colleagues were thinking at Dallas, the sort of those arguments. And so when you ended up and and John was saying that he, you know, he kind of sensed or saw or had a word that you were going to lose your job and lose your church. Where did it go from there? Well, I said, uh, I'm a pastor, right, John? And he said, right. And I said, so I should be a healer. And he goes, well, yeah, right. And I said, do you know anybody that could teach me about healing better than you? And he goes, well, I can teach you. And I said, okay, I'm all in. And he says, okay, if that's the way you feel, I just want you to know what you're risking. And but I honestly didn't believe it was a risk uh, because I was, I was a favorite son of Dallas Seminary. I mean, I was one of the youngest guys on the faculty. By the time I met John Wimber, I was teaching in the doctoral program. In fact, I was giving exams to, to decide whether people got into the doctoral program or not. You could not get into the program at Dallas Seminary if you didn't pass my German exam and if you didn't pass my theological oral exam. And uh, they were not easy. I, I mean, uh, I mean, I... I humiliated guys, and I, and, and I was actually disgusted with the level of theological knowledge some of our graduates had that want to go into the uh, want to go into the uh, doctoral program. So I was tough, um, and, and I had good friends on faculty. I mean, really smart, smart uh, colleagues, and and I had a I had a, an aristocratic Bible church in in Dallas that had CEOs and heads of law firms and all that. These are the guys I hung hung out with. So I I felt the protected. I just thought, you know, John just doesn't know my world. He doesn't, and he, and he has no idea of my exegetical skills. That was kind of, that's where the arrogance came in, that I thought I could win by having exegetical skills, not realizing this was a way, way bigger deal than just who's right in, in the Bible, that this has all kinds of emotional in, uh, tensions. Yeah. So he, he said, yeah, I can teach you. And I said, well, I want to learn. And he said, okay, if that's the case, uh, when, when do you want to come out here? And, and so the next month he flew me and Lisa out to Anaheim. I saw his church, 5,000 people on Sunday, absolutely amazing worship. Uh, saw healing teams where, where the people in the church were doing the work of the ministry. And that's what set Wimber's church apart from so many other churches where the pastor or the pastoral staff was doing the ministry. He had 5,000 people coming and probably 2,500 of the people in the church were on some form of ministry team or home group. It was absolutely Amazing. And he said to me, Jack, I don't count. I don't say I have a church of 5,000 people. I have a church of 2,500. I only count people who are in doing the work of the ministry as members of my uh, church. And then from there, he said, okay, any conference you want to go to, I'll pay for your airfare. I'll pay for your car rental, your food, and your hotel. You just tell the, you just tell my conference head what you want to do and you can go with me and I'll, I'll teach you. And so I walked around and I watched him do stuff. I mean, he knew things about people uh, before he would uh, pray for them and, and would call out things about them. I saw him pray for people. I saw instant healings. I'm standing beside him in, uh, in New Orleans in the fall of 1987. There were 10,000 people at this conference and he had a workshop of 3,500. And there was a, blind, uh, uh, a, a guy who was blind in one eye, had a big scar across his eye. Now, and Wimber just put his hand across the eye and said, see, he didn't even say see in the name of Jesus. And the guy instantly saw. 
I would see him call out things, describe illnesses of people that were there, call out names of people that were there. And it was, and, and it was all true. I just, he was just so supernatural, but he was so down to earth and he never did it in a way that drew attention to himself. And, and so he started uh, teaching me how to heal and how to hear God's voice. We're, we're at a conference of uh, 3,500 people in his church, right? And uh, so he's standing on a stage and now I'm down at the front. I'm on one of the prayer teams and all, all that. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm still teaching at Dallas Seminary, but not for long. And uh, so we're, we're praying for people. I forget for something. He starts, to, he walks off the stage, just gets to the edge of the stage and he comes back. And he, and he says, um, there's a lady here, uh, you, you, have, you have cancer and you haven't come down for prayer. Would you please come down? And no lady comes down. So, uh, so he just, just kind of up there thinking, meditating for a minute. And he said, uh, you flew in on Tuesday. You, you really came here uh, to be prayed for. And you have cancer. You came on Tuesday. Just come down to the front and we'll pray for you. No lady came down. And then he said, uh, you're sitting on the back row and you're wearing a pink dress. Would you please come down to the front and let us pray for you? And a lady on the very back row in a pink dress got up and came down to the front. And she had cancer. She flew in on Tuesday. Um, and when John called her out, the devil said, oh, that can't be you. You're still smoking. God's not going to heal you if you're still smoking. And he was trying to keep her from coming down to the front. So now I, I see all that happen, right? So John and I are walking uh, back to the office uh, afterwards. And I say, John, that was amazing. That must have gone off like a foghorn in your brain. He goes, oh, no, Jack. He said, it was so faint. I almost missed it. And I said, what? He goes, oh, yeah. He said, I thought we were all done. I was just walking off the stage. And I had this impression about a lady with cancer. So I thought, I can try it. I said, Tuesday? And he said, well, when she didn't come down at the front, Tuesday floated through my mind. It was just there for a few seconds and it was gone. And I thought, well, a lot of people come to Southern California on Tuesday before the conference starts on Thursday because they want to see what it's like and all that. I thought that must be what it means. And I go, pink dress sitting on the back row. He goes, well, for a few seconds, I just saw pink floating over the back of the room. And I thought that must mean she's wearing a pink dress in the back row. I go, John, you just called out this lady in front of 3,500 people based, based on those flimsy impressions? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, How, why would you do that? And he says, well, that's just the way the Lord speaks to me about healing, Jack. And I've had more luck adjusting to his way of speaking than getting him to adjust to my way of hearing. <laughs> Can I just say, I want you to continue your story. It's so compelling. But I do want to say my wife and I were reading your book and and when you when you sort of share story that story just it's it's like sort of a behind the scenes look we yeah, just yeah. always assumed like you did it's the foghorn there's a woman yeah. in the in pink dress back there and that it sort of like brings it down to earth if you will like where the heaven meets earth it's it's not always like like you had thought and that for my wife and i actually like ch sort of changed our i don't know if it's our theology or just the way we understood and we found that very very helpful but anyways i just wanted to share that and please please do continue your story well so so look if if, if he hadn't been there to correct me i would be waiting for the falcon board falkhorn voice and i would never hear god's voice i would be thinking oh, this is going to be something like an audible voice voice and wimber gave me the courage to move out on impressions so and then then you start looking through the new testament and you see them all over the place so paul 
in uh, Acts 13, uh, uh, Acts 14, he has this impression. He's at Lystra preaching. There's a lame guy in the middle, and he has an impression that the guy has faith to be healed. He stops the message, calls him out, and he's healed based on an impression. So, so you find that's one of the common ways in the New Testament that God speaks to us. Um, the, the audible voice is rare, but impressions uh, are, are really uh, common. Pictures are really uh, common. Um, I was standing before, and Wimber taught me that. Wimber would get pictures all the time. I'm standing before a really sophisticated group, St. John the Divine in Houston. It's the third largest Episcopal church in the country. And this Episcopal church, uh, formal Episcopal church, asked me to come and do uh, speak on healing and hearing God's voice. Right? So uh, I'm, I'm standing up there talking about hearing God's voice. And I, and, and I say, sometimes you'll just see a picture. And as soon as I said, sometimes you'll see a picture, I saw a picture of an esophagus on the right side of the room up at the ceiling, just dangling there. And I said, sometimes I'll just come out of nowhere and I'm looking up at the esophagus while I'm still talking. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I watched the esophagus dangle across the room. And when it hit the other side of the room, it went beam. And I'm thinking, Lord, what are you saying? And then I went, ah, reflux esophagitis. There must be people here with esophageal problems. So I just stopped and I said, I think the Lord will heal uh, all kinds of esophageal problems. So if you have reflux esophagitis, um, or hernias, or anything like that, so please just stand up and we'll pray for you. 25% of the people in the room got up. 25%. And that wasn't all, because I saw some wives hitting their husbands, like, you better get up, and the husbands wouldn't get up. So we prayed for, and stopped and prayed for uh, esophageal problems. And for weeks, I got back reports from the church of people that got healed of esophageal problems. Get out. I've never known you could just trust a simple picture, but Wimber taught me that. And then I just, then, then the faith comes, you got to act on that when it happens. And then also here's the, here's the really hard thing about learning how to hear God's voice is you've got to be willing to make mistakes in front of people. No, no one becomes a good golfer without making bad, without making mistakes. No one hears God well without making mistakes. And if you've got the courage to make mistakes in front of people and to laugh at yourself, you can progress in hearing God's voice. But if you're one of those perfectionists, you know, who, who can't be wrong in front of people, then you're not going to really progress in hearing his voice. And I learned all this stuff from Wimber, just traveling around the world with him. He set me on stages in front of thousands of people and, uh, and, and, you know, praised me like a proud father. And when I made mistakes, he said, well, I think here's what went wrong, Jack. Uh, it was like the most incredible teacher. I mean, he was, he was a disciple. He was a spiritual father. He loved me and he taught me to love what he loved. So Jack, would you tell people, to seek this? I mean, um, when I just read Corinthians, I see it as one of the gifts that the Spirit gives to the body so that the body can function like Jesus. Um, would you would you have people ask the Spirit for the gift of healing? And then once they feel a tingling in their chest, they know they can start doing it? Or like, how would oh, you pres- prescribe going forward? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't tell people to do that. But Paul tells people to do that, right? First Corinthians 13, 1, or 14.1, earnestly pursue spiritual gifts. I didn't make that up. And then he says, especially prophecy. So how do you pursue it if you're not willing to make mistakes and try it in public and all that? You know, I earnestly pursued teaching. I, I, in those early days, I stood in front of people and made an absolute idiot out of myself. I mean, I cringe when I go back and hear some of the messages I said or what I was saying I thought scripture meant. But that's how you learn. You you. You're not going to become good at anything you don't pursue. 
that, that's a, whether it's sports, um, uh, healing, hearing God's voice, any spiritual gift, um, you got to pursue it and you got to so, be willing to make mistakes. One of the things that I'm afraid of is the moment it doesn't happen, which doesn't sound like faith, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I saw someone the other day um, uh, who was in a wheelchair and my heart just broke and I wanted to pray uh, for this person and I didn't know how to wrap up if Jesus didn't heal her how to basically get through the moment where I look at her and I say well apparently you weren't worth um, God's time today thanks for letting me pray for you uh, how help us walk through give us some steps so we can move forward there and deal with those moments sure um, does God answer all your prayers Jennifer? no so you, you, you leave him then when he doesn't answer your prayers, right? No. Why not? Why don't you? Uh, well, he's changed my nature to believe in him. <laughs> see, that, see, I thought just like you did before I started praying for the sick, I thought if we pray for someone for healing, especially if we do it in front of the church and they don't get healed, it'll destroy their faith. Why did I put healing in a separate category from all the other prayers? I, I prayed for money. Sometimes I didn't get it. I prayed for people to come to the Lord. They didn't come to the Lord. None, no unanswered prayer destroyed my faith. I just said, he's God. He's sovereign. He decides. I can ask, but he decides. Yeah. Well, I, I had a similar question, sort of follow-up. I, you know, I remember just being in, in Haiti and saying, is there anyone sick? Because I remember these verses. If there's anyone sick amongst you, so, you know. We, we weren't the locals of that church, but we were with the, um, the elders, prayed, nothing happened. I remember being in Thailand, someone, a lady was sick, dying, prayed for her, nothing happened. And I, I could literally say I've prayed for like literally hundreds of people. <clears throat> and if I were to be honest, I don't pray for healing two people anymore. I, in my prayer closet, I will. However, the only... I, I pray when we have family worship with my kids, my young children, you know, ages seven, four, and two. And we were praying for this this one young man that we know who was dying, and we prayed every day for him, and he ended up dying. And my daughter's literal doubt and her she she had doubt in Jesus re resulting from that. She saw, I don't I don't know if God actually heals, you know, and and so I try to say these different things. He doesn't always, but like that is a real reality. It's like if you if you have a website and I click it once with my mouse, it doesn't open. I click it again a few times, it doesn't open. And then maybe I'll go just like 50 times. They're like, you know what? This thing's not opening. I'm not even mad about it. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try a different, a different site or a different page. That's how, how, can you address that sort well, of scenario? Yeah, you don't have a Bible that says that website, web, website uh, is, is from God. I mean, you have a Bible that says we're supposed to pray. You have not because you ask not. Uh, God governs the world through the prayers of his saints. Um, I mean, uh, but it's up to him how he answers it. And uh, so, you know, Paul had, Paul had a great healing gift, right? But he left Trophimus sick at Miletus, 2 Timothy 4.20, and he really needed him. He couldn't get his spiritual son healed, Timothy. Take a little, 1 Timothy 5, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and most people miss this, your frequent illnesses. Timothy had frequent illnesses. Um, and uh, Epaphroditus, he, left, he, he, he said God had mercy on him, 
and healed him, but he, but he couldn't get him healed. So Paul has one of the greatest healing gifts, but not everybody Paul prays for gets healed. And, and he couldn't heal his spiritual son. You know how important Timothy uh, was to him. So it's just not everybody gets healed. God has plans. Sometimes here's the, the Bible does not promise healing to everyone. Now, I, I've got Pentecostal friends who say, if you have enough faith, um, you can be healed of anything. God's obligated to heal you in this life. And then they quote uh, Isaiah 53, where, uh, by his stripes we're healed. Uh, so it's true that all healing comes through the atonement. All healing comes through the, the cross of Jesus. But not just healing. All blessing, every single blessing comes through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Does the cross of Jesus guarantee healing in this life if we have enough faith? And my answer is, I can't find that promise anywhere in Scripture. And I can find counterexamples, like Timothy not being healed. Now, if Paul believed that everybody should get healed if, if they had enough faith, he would not have said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent illnesses. He would have said, Timothy, you got to get your faith working, man. Come on. Uh, you've seen this, you know this works, now just trust God, and he's going to eat, that he would have said something like that, but he doesn't, because Paul knows what we all know, not everybody we pray for is going to get healed, so what can you say God's promised? Unequivocally, here's what you can say he promises, Hebrews 4.16, this is the promise I live by, the promise that's never failed me, let us draw near the throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive grace and mercy in time of our need and time to help. So what does he promise? Every time we come before that throne of grace with confidence, he promises to give us grace and mercy, which will help with the very need we have. Sometimes that grace and mercy will take uh, the, the form of a miracle, which is phenomenal. Sometimes it takes the form of power to endure. Which are you going to get? Well, you don't know. I always ask for the miracle, but I'll take whatever he gives me. And uh, if he doesn't give me the miracle, I assume it's because more than the miracle, I needed grace to endure. Pain is a reality of life. God is a great, great father. He doesn't waste any of his pain, and he doesn't want us, doesn't want us wasting it. Here's what I say about pain. I've had pain I did not deserve. I've never had pain I did not need. It's up to my father. He decides which pain he'll remove and which he'll give me grace to endure. And there's some, I, I, there's some places that I can't get to in the abyss of divine love without pain taking me down there. And it's like God says, hey, if you really want everything you've said for me, then you're going to have to learn how to accept pain and how to prosper under it. Because pain is one of his major tools for taking us deeper in him. And it's a mystery. His, his will is a mystery. Why he heals sometimes, why he doesn't other times. He always gives grace, though. Hebrews 4.16. Every time I teach healing, I teach Hebrews 4.16. Put your confidence in his goodness. Um, hope for what? Hope. Uh, or, or ask for whatever ever outcome you want, but never put hope in an outcome. Put your hope in the goodness of God, and you won't be disappointed. That's good. Yeah. So that's where I am. I got lots of people I pray for don't get healed. Uh, but, but some do. And, and, uh, it, it, and, and I, I, I experience God all the time, whether there's a healing or, or not. Uh, I experience his mercy all the time.
Can you talk about um, not the professor specifically, but how people use um, in your book, uh, why I'm still surprised by the power of the spirit. You talk about as you were starting to believe uh, in that the gifts were today, basically, um, you became aware of another professor in California who also uh, was starting to also see that it's an exegetically valid stance to believe in the yeah. gifts, yeah. Um, who basically prayed for his, I think, grandson to oh, see. Yeah, yeah and, I know. Um, can you talk about that and then how? Yeah, yeah and in the response to my in the response to my professor colleague Dallas. Yeah, so uh, I became uh, friends with uh, some of the Fuller professors, and one of them was Peter Wagner. And Peter was a professor of uh, missions, and he had been uh, uh, a missionary in Bolivia, was fluent in Spanish, just godly guy, wonderful guy, just full of laughter and all that. He prayed for the grandson of the chairman of the School of Missions, Paul Pearson's son, who had an, a, a, uh, problems with his eyes and problems with his ears. He was born without ears. It, he was adopted. He was, I think he was a Haitian boy, I, I think. It's been a long time ago. So Peter was telling me this story, and he gave me and, and he gave me the number of the father of the boy, the telephone number, and I called him, and, and Peter had prayed for him, and then they went to the doctor, and earbuds started growing. All right, and, and they, they, the doctor saw it. And he goes, "This is impossible. This is a phenomenal miracle." And he could hear, and, and there was something wrong with his vision, and uh, he he was now seeing uh, better. So this is. The doctor says, hey, doesn't matter if his ears don't grow out the rest of the way. He's got enough there. We can actually form ears for him now. This is, this, I've never seen anything like this. So the doctor says it's a miracle, right? So I'm telling a, a professor who is an administrator at my seminary, who has kind of like authority over the, I'm telling him this story. And I said, uh, you know, if God's doing, I, and I told him I called, I actually talked to these guys. And, and, I, and I offered them the numbers so he could talk to the father. And, uh, and he knows who Peter Wagner was. He know, we, you know, we knew the Fuller professors were. We're all, we're all evangelical guys, and we all give lectures every year at the Evangelical Theological Society. So we mix shoulders with the guys from Westminster and Trinity and Fuller. Um, so I offered him the number. He didn't want it. And I said, oh, come on, man. If God's doing stuff like this in our day, we need to be investigating it. And he said, I'm not sure. And I said, you're not sure it happened? He says, no, I'm not sure God did it. So he wasn't denying that it happened. That's why he didn't need to call. He was denying that God did it. He was thinking that the devil did it. And so I looked at him and I go, hey, tell me, where in the world does, can, can you show me a, a godly Christian? And everybody said Wagner's a godly guy a godly Christian missionary in Bolivia uh, who prays for a miracle in the name of Jesus for a small child. It happens. And then the devil did it. Can you show me anywhere in history where that happened? So, well, I'm not sure. And that was the end of the conversation. He was so absolutely convinced that God was not healing today, that his theology was right, that any contradiction to his theology had to be produced by the devil. Right. That was the blindness 25, 26 years ago in the evangelical community. I don't see, I don't encounter that kind of stuff anymore. And this is dramatically changed. This has been, <clears throat> I mean, just your story alone is compelling, authoritative, you know, authoritative as in like you're speaking from the overflow of your heart rooted in scripture. Um, 
man, we would love to have a part two with you down the road if you're ever willing. Just let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. As far as how we could, I mean, yeah. So let's see. We'll plan for just a part two of how we how the soccer mom takes this and applies it to their life. Um, but just by way of just the last question, could you give just even give the um, the rank and file Christian just sort of some what marching orders do you see from the word and then that you have sort of seen how these things work out? How, how can we, we sort of actually begin to walk in this? Just if you might just sort of end us with that. Yeah. yeah. So the, the easiest, the most practical way, and I do this in every church I come to is to get a home group where you're meeting once a week, 15, 20 people and have a time where you do all the things, home groups does you share and, and all that. But then you have a time at the end, where you say, God, would you speak to us about someone you want to heal or someone you want us to pray for or give us a message? And then you all just bow your heads and you kind of wait there uh, silently, waiting for an impression to come in or a picture to come in or some other direction. Sometimes I'll feel a sensation in my body, not necessarily a pain, but I'll, I'll feel my knee throbbing. I'll feel like my left knee throbbing. And it's not really a pain, but it's drawing attention to my left knee. And then I know somebody in the room's got something wrong with their left knee. Sure, it turns out that happens and you go oh man you're so new age no jesus felt a woman <laughs> touch right he's crowding around him and a woman touched him and he says who touched me and peter goes lord everybody's touching you and he goes no no somebody touched me i felt power go out from me see we're, we're not just minds right we're not just spirits we're bodies and it makes sense that god would speak to us in our bodies as well as in our minds and in our spirits so so i say wow. Yeah. Okay, just let's get calm. Don't try to make anything happen. Just put your mind on Jesus and ask him to speak to you. And so an impression will fly in out of nowhere. Um, I, I, you'll see a picture that you, you didn't make up. Um, or you'll have, an, you'll have some kind of sensation in your body. And then, and then we give a, wait for a few minutes like that. And I say, okay, anybody have one of those things? And then you raise your hand and say, yeah, I, I, had, a, I had this Im impression that we should pray for so-and-so, or we should pray that there's somebody here with a heart murmur. And it turns out in a group of 15, somebody there with a heart murmur since they were young. Or, and then, then you just practice. And then probably at least half to two-thirds of the stuff will be wrong. Maybe 75% maybe of the stuff will be wrong. But then you just keep trying. You come back, and, and you'll make jokes, and you'll laugh about your failures. Okay. You, you tried, and, and, and I actually enjoy failing in front of a group. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen very often now, but, uh, but it, but it gives when, when somebody sees me make a mistake or a misinterpretation, it just go, wow, man, if he, if he missed it, I'm going to yeah. try mine. And, uh, yeah. so that, that's like a real hands-on easy way to do it. And, and I teach people that in those home groups all the time. And almost always in my life, I have a home group, uh, that I'm teaching how to do that and how to become friends with Jesus, how to feel his affection and how to enjoy him. Um, not just think of him as an obligation, but a person we enjoy and who enjoys us. So um, what you would say, even though there's a lot of working out, I think it's pretty obvious that there's a lot to gain by going down this path. <laughs> someone might get some ears that they didn't have. Uh, is, is that what your plea would be to the person who is just like, Hey, this is just too weird for me. I, um, it just to stick to hang in there and it might be six years, but someone might end up seeing from your decision to move forward this way. 
I, I would go a little bit stronger than that. I would go, uh, the Apostle Paul, after talking about all the abuses of the gifts, the Corinthians were abusing the spiritual gifts, especially abusing tongues. After going through all that, he says in 14.1, earnestly pursue spiritual gifts. That, that's not uh, a suggestion. That is a command of the church. Uh, earnestly pursue spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Paul knew that the prophetic gift had way more power over unbelievers than our best intellectual arguments. And and First Peter says, you know, First Peter four seven to ten, uh, the last days are here. So what does he say to do? Above all, pray. God governs the world through the prayers of His saints. Love one another. Use your spiritual gift. The reason the church is weak today, or in some places really weak, is because we're not using the gifts God gave us to fight the good fight. We're in a fight, and we have weapons to do it. Use them. Wow. I mean, how simple is that? It's a simple reading of scripture. <laughs> Thank you, man. This has been so powerful. Like I said, not even joking. I wish we had hours with you, but yeah, let's, um, you know, like we mentioned listeners, um, Jector is willing to do a part two down the road and maybe down there we will discuss, um, Jector has written a chapter on like what the reformers thought and what the reformers thought of, you know, gifts and prophecy and this sort of thing. And actually, gives us case studies of where those things legit took place. You know, these are the confession writers and, you know, the pillars of the faith. We'll discuss how to, uh, how to pursue the gifts, how to walk in them. What about happens when we actually see a false prophecy? Is it called a false prophecy? Is someone's practicing if they're trying? Oh no, what do we do? So all those sort of for um, um, part two, when Jector is ready to do that. And brother, we just want to say thank you. Encourage the saints um, to go out and you actually also released um, sort of a, a biography as well. Can we just close on those, the two recent yeah, public yeah. releases? Yeah. Yeah. Can oh, you the, oh, sure. sure. The, the biography is called, or it's autobiography. It's actually a memoir more than an autobiography. It's called even in our darkness and it's an unsanitized version of the Christian life. You know, one of the worst things we pastors do is we stand on a stage and we present a version of our life that's actually better than it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to do that all the time. I tell all my good stories. I never tell my bad stories. Yeah. So what I was doing is I was teaching every single person that was hearing me to go underground with their sin. So they hear me tell these great stories about myself and they go, wow, my life's not like that. I don't have an authentic version of Christianity. I better be mm. quiet about what I'm struggling with. Mm. And, uh, it, and so I, I've learned over the years that people are more encouraged by my failures than they are by my successes. Yes. So I want to be a friend of Jesus. And, and friendships take time and they take trouble. Uh, but a friend of Jesus is a person who enjoys him, who feels his affection. Um, in order to do that, uh, there's a whole process he, he takes us through so that, so that we can actually become his friend. And that's what the book is about. It's about becoming a friend of Jesus, how he uses everything, the good things, the pain, the trauma in our life to move us into a place of friendship. And it's an unsanitized version. I tell about sins that I committed, sins that my wife and I have committed that you won't hear other pastors talking about. And, and so I'm, I wrote that book a few years ago, uh, and it was kind of a safe time. I'm now 70 years old. Nobody can fire me anymore. I don't work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like the book. Just say, hey, well, he's, he's a sinner. Well, yeah, okay, I, I fess up to that. 
Um, but it's also got so much encouragement from uh, all the different ways God speaks to us and reveals his affection. It's a book talking about how God reveals his affection. And then I, I rewrote Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And uh, it's a completely new book. And uh, it, it talks about how God speaks and how, uh, how he heals. Uh, but it has chapters in there that weren't in the chapter of the first book. Like it's got three chapters on filled with the Spirit. There's mm. so much silliness about being filled with the Spirit that goes on in the church today because nobody's reading Scripture. They're not uh, getting it from Scripture. And then there's, there's uh, a, a couple of chapters on demonization, um, how, how demons get influence o- over us. You know, demons are on every page of the Gospels, right? Yeah. Where, where do they all go? Yeah. <laughs> they go up and find us someplace. I mean, when I started praying for the sick, I started demons started manifesting when power would come on somebody. And, uh, and, it, it, and you want to know how to get rid of them. This is not some mystery or some, it's no apostle or Jesus, no one's afraid of the devil in the, in the New Testament or afraid mm-hmm. of Satan. And so I wrote a real practical thing. If you're going to pray for the sick uh, uh, as a way of life, like I do, you're going to encounter demons. And here's what you do when one pops up. And wow. it's a real simple scriptural basis and how do demons get influenced in you? Mm-hmm. Well, I've got, uh, I talk about how the, the, what the typical six, seven demonic inroads are in scripture. So all that's in this new book it's like an 80 percent new book and it's and i'm a better writer now it's 25 years later i have, I have a different style and uh, so uh, both those books are already being translated into languages uh, of the world and going all over the world well we thank you for that We're, we'll be leak, linking those in the show notes we have a huge contest coming up uh, we'll announce that at the end of part two for some of these great stuff coming out Jack Deere, thanks for pointing us to friendship with Jesus, and thanks for pointing us towards obedience, even if it's not popular, but um, it's what we're called to. We thank you very much, brother. So welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. You too, Joe. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave.